This morning I want to uh, share a message with you that the Lord has been laying on my heart for a little while. And you'll chuckle after all of that talk about Shepherd's Knoll, but within the property we have uh, a theme, uh, the shepherd. And that comes very quickly from our partner's dad, Dr. Bob Frederick, most of you know him, or many of you. He dubbed his study up in North Raymond, Shepherd's Knoll, and he had a beautiful sign painted with a lighthouse from his church in Portland and the mountains, and he called it Shepherd's Knoll. So when John and I were first talking about the possibility of a ministry there at this beautiful property, he looked at me and he said, what should we call this? And we both paused about three seconds and simultaneously pointed at each other and said, Shepherd's Knoll. I added a Roman numeral two to it just in memory, but it's in memory of Dr. Bob. I know that he would rejoice to see the ministry, Pastor Russ and Pastor Henry, uh, I know have been blessed to be mentored by Dr. Bob before he went to be with the Lord in glory about eight years ago. So his ministry lives on in our lives and hopefully uh, passing it on to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we serve him. And so the theme of a shepherd, I'm coming to you this morning looking at this 23rd Psalm as a spiritual shepherd, a pastor for 35 years. But also I'm going to be sharing some in-depth insights from Philip Keller, who wrote a book, the, the, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And he literally served as a shepherd for eight years or so. And so Psalm 23 comes alive to him. It's not just a nice poem or an allegory, it's a reality. And my desire this morning is to serve God by, by refreshing our hearts with a very familiar passage, but hopefully adding some new insights and getting us viewing God as our good shepherd. Um, I told Ivan this morning that uh, I hadn't contacted him once I uh, agreed to speak and I found out who was leading the worship team because I already had gotten his list of music and, and it was perfect. And each and every song this morning has just kind of energized me and, and made me more excited because it all fits. We have a good, good shepherd. So let's just bow in prayer and ask God to really open our hearts and minds and to let us hear what he wants us to hear. Uh, Father God, it is with great joy that we have gathered today to worship you. We do not come into this place to be entertained. We don't come here to catch up on football, baseball, or stock market. Uh, information, we come or should come expressly to worship you in each and every form, each aspect of the service as it unfolds. And now, Lord, as we break the, the bread, your word is the bread for our souls. I pray you would give us all ears to hear a fresh perspective on a very familiar passage of Scripture. And we praise you and thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A shepherd was herding his flock in a remote pasture when suddenly a brand new Jeep Cherokee, Cherokee comes roaring out of the dust towards him. The driver, a young man in a Baroni suit, Gucci shoes, Ray-Ban sunglasses, and a, I had to look it up, YSL tie. Yves, how do you say it? St. Laurent, you know, that guy that makes too much money for clothes. Anyway, he leans out the window and he asked our shepherd, if, you, if I can tell you exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, will you give me one? Shepherd looked at the yuppie, then at his peacefully grazing flock and calmly answers, sure. The young man parks the Jeep, whips out his iPad, connects to the internet, surfs to a NASA page where he calls up a GPS satellite uh, navigation system, scans the area, opens up a database and some 60 Excel spreadsheets <laughs> on his high-tech miniaturized, or rather uh, with complex formulas. 
Finally, he prints out a 150-page report on his high-tech you know, mini-computer printer, and he turns to the shepherd and he says, you have exactly 1,586 sheep. Wow, that's correct, says the shepherd. As agreed, you can take one of the sheep. He watches the young man make a selection and bundle it into his Cherokee. Then he says to the young yuppie, if I can tell you exactly what your business is, might I have my sheep back? The guy says, okay, why not? The shepherd says, you are a consultant. The young man is like, that's correct. How did you guess? <laughs> Easy, says the shepherd. You turn up here, even though nobody invited you or asked you to be here. You want to be paid for the solution to a question that I already know the answer for. And you don't know anything about my business because you just took my dog. <laughs> it wasn't the suit. <laughs> so on a more serious note, though, the story is told of a man telling about a dream that he had. In this dream, he moved among the temples of ancient Greece. Near one of them, he met a priest and began to talk with him. Pointing to people approaching the temple, the dreamer said to the priest, I suppose these people honor and love their God. The priest just laughed. Honor? Love? What do you mean? They fear him because he may destroy them. He doesn't work by will, by whim, by caprice. He may smite with illness, curse with barrenness, blight with disaster. No one can know the mind of a god, little g. One may only appease his anger. Sadly, beloved, that is all too true of many folks as they look at God. They see our God, our great shepherd, as an uncaring, unloving, detached, and perhaps even at times cruel deity who is to be feared and avoided. But the good news is that was not David, our shepherd king. That was not his perspective. When David declared, the Lord is my shepherd, he knew what he was speaking of, both from the perspective of God being his shepherd and as well as David being a literal shepherd himself. You see, for David, it was very personal. This is his God with whom he was in an intimate, a very deep and very special relationship. And so when he wrote of God being his shepherd, David said that he knew, he was saying that he knew he was safe in the arms and the loving care of our shepherd. Psalm 59, 16 says, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the days of my distress. Going forward a couple chapters, David writes in Psalm 61, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Do you see a pattern here? Young David, we still see him as this little boy, meek and mild, out tending the sheep. Somehow he took on a lion and a bear and protected the sheep. And then he took on this little guy named Goliath with nothing but a slingshot and a rock. And he conquered that man. It was because God is his shepherd and was his shepherd at that time that David saw the power of God. And here's the part that I want you to take home today. That same power that our God gave to David is the very same power that God wants each and every believer, that is a person who professes personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the sheep 
of the creator of the universe. And that power of Almighty God is ours to serve him, not to serve ourselves, but to serve God. And so for David, when he saw this, this pagan mocking not only the people, his people, that were God's chosen people, but mocking the very God that David worshipped, it was an anathema for him to even think for a moment that he would stand by and let that happen. Now keep in mind, this young man is the shepherd who's come up to the front lines to deliver some food to his brothers who were the real soldiers. They were all cowering in fear because of this Philistine standing on the hill mocking. We know the story. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, David, by God's power and God's anointing in that time and directing David's hand in that stone, conquered a spiteful enemy, an enemy of God. You may never face a literal giant. You may never have to take up a slingshot and put a stone in and swing it around and launch it at an enemy. But there are times each and every day in our lives where that enemy is real in one form or another. And we need to have that little pouch with the rocks, the spiritual armor, the spiritual weaponry. We need to be ready to use it as we call upon the Lord, not to glorify or edify ourselves, but that by our life testimony and to whom we give the glory, we see God glorified. Many, many times people will ask a believer who is out there with their faith, why do you think the way you think? Why do you do the things that you do? My prayer is that every one of us answer it with a, a humble smile to say, because God is my Savior, and I live to serve Him, and I love because He first loved me, and I would like you to know that same God in the same way that I know Him. Those aren't hard words to say. It takes just a little courage to say, the world can talk with their mockery about God. Why can't we speak with a little boldness that comes from the Spirit of God through our lips to the ears of those who need to hear it? Amen? Amen. Amen. So as we, as we go on, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, and again, I'm quoting him, and of course he spoke in a little bit different English, and so some of the words, but listen carefully, it's very simple. But he said this, we have all things and abound. We have all things and abound. Not because I have a great store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. Charles Spurgeon, I just, I just think of him standing Sunday after Sunday before 10,000 people, preaching for three hours, declaring the word of God, unabashedly, unashamedly, proclaiming the word of God to people. Another man wrote this simply regarding our familiarity with the 23rd Psalm. He wrote, Bible study without Bible experience is pointless. Knowing Psalm 23, he said, is different from knowing the shepherd. If I were to ask you how many of you knew President Bush, George W., you could say, well, I knew him. I knew him because he was the president. I saw him on television. I was blessed to be at a pastor's uh, conference down in, in Tennessee a few years back, and the former president came and spoke to us for almost two hours. So I knew him a little more intimately. I never shook his hand. I never sat down and had coffee with him. But I can say to a degree, I know him, but that's not the kind of knowledge that God, our shepherd, wants us, his sheep, to have with him. He wants us to have an intimate, and I have stopped using the word a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ for this reason. 
I don't say this to, to convict anyone, but simply think about this. In a day and age where every single thing that we partake of can be or is personalized, when we t- apply that to God our Savior, no, salvation is not personalized to me. It is personal because I have individually recognized my sin, confessed those sins to God, begged His forgiveness, and with befuddlement in my heart, accepted and believe, as sure as I'm standing here, that those sins are buried in the deepest sea. That's an intimate relationship. It's not personalized. So be careful when we talk about that, that people don't think, because today people want to make God out to be what they want. They want to design a designer God. And people say, oh, I believe in God. And then they, commit to, or they proceed to tell you about their God. And it is not even little g. It's just little tiny letters, G-O-T. G-O-D, because it's not the God of the universe. When I hear or read the 23rd Psalm, I'm often taken back to an old hymn I grew up with and uh, sing. I'm not singing it to this morning, but I just would like you to listen to the words for a moment. It's called, He Leadeth Me. How many of you recognize that? Okay. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, by waters calm or troubled sea, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory's won, even death's cold wave I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. And then the chorus, the chorus is this. He leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand, he leadeth me. His faithful follower, I would be by his hand. For by his hand, he leadeth me. Folks, do you realize that shepherds lead their flocks? They can't stand behind a flock of sheep and drive them because they just scatter all the way. And so the picture of Jesus Christ as our good shepherd, as he talks about in John 10, is apt. It's not just a word. It has meaning, as does each aspect of the 23rd Psalm. And so I want to go through that with you um, briefly. There's tons and tons of things. If you're more interested in some deeper depth, get the book. A Shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm. Philip Keller is the author. And I am, I am gleaning a lot from him, and I give him uh, the credit for his insights. But he says this, writing from the voice of experience, having worked, as I said, for over eight years as both an owner and shepherd. He has insights that we non-shepherds would understand from David's poem, the 23rd Psalm. So if you would please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 23. I'm going to be referencing um, the verses one by one and actually part by part, so I trust you'll stay with me and uh, maybe take a note or two. But Keller wrote this in his opening chapter titled, The Lord is My Shepherd. It's the first refrain of the first verse. He wrote, our view of him, meaning God our Lord, is often too small, too cramped, too provincial, too human. And because it is, we feel unwilling to allow him to have authority or control, much uh, less outright ownership of our lives. Ooh, did you catch that? Let me say it again. He says, we struggle against God having control, authority over our lives, much less God having ownership over our lives. When we bristle at that concept of God owning us, do we also reject the notion that he, with a price, purchased us? By his blood, he 
purchased me. He redeemed me from the trash heap. I mean, 40 years of garbage down, that's where God sought me and found me, and he redeemed me. And I should bristle at the idea that he owns me? First he created me, I sin against him, and then he loves me so much he comes back and says, Dan, I'm not walking away from you. I want you to be mine. And he redeemed me, purchased me. Let that sink in as you listen to this. It's incredible. Colossians um, chapter 1, verses 15, Paul writes this. He is the image, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and through him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him, the Son. I'll just paraphrase. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. You see what Paul included? We are part of that all things that have been reconciled to God. We as wretched sinners who deserved more than being sent to hell. That's not, even, that's not even bad enough if you want to put it that way. But his love redeemed and he purchased us. So folks, listen. The well-being of a flock of sheep depends on what type of shepherd that flock has. The flock of sheep will be no healthier no more valuable in terms of the byproducts, the wool, the meat, etc., than the shepherd. I know that we are so programmed or conditioned by all the cute little cartoony pictures of the little boys dressed up for the kitchen pageant with their staff and their little costumes. Let me tell you, I saw some real shepherds in Romania. And I'm telling you, we don't see them depicted in our Christmas nativity scenes. We were in the train station in Bucharest, headed for a five-hour train ride to Severine to do a month of teaching at the seminary there. And the dear Christian sister who, at risk to her own reputation and job, met us and guided us to train. As we're walking through this huge hall, all of a sudden the crowd begins to part. I knew it wasn't for us. And here came four shepherds. They probably were about five or six inches taller than me, about twice as broad as me, wearing these filthy uh, wool shawls or, or capes and on. And they were stomping through there like they owned the place. And people were literally pulling away. Is that the picture you have of God the Good Shepherd? That's the reality when you think about a shepherd. They are loners, they're outcasts. How does God then turn it around? excuse me, and create a picture of our Savior being a good shepherd. Well, we'll find that out as David explains it. The good shepherd, excuse me, spares no points or pains for the welfare of his sheep. Keller recalled a time, and this is incredible, when he could see one of the abutting sheep ranches in his district, which was operated by a tenant sheep man. He calls him a sheep man because he wasn't a shepherd. He said that the man should never have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock was always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again, the sheep would come and stand at the fence, staring blindly through the woven wire at the lush green pastures which Keller's flock enjoyed. Had they been able to, to speak, he said, 
he was sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. Now, that was not a boast. That was a heartbreaking thing for a good shepherd to acknowledge about the poor sheep that were under the care of another shepherd. The principle here, folks, starts with the reality that God truly is our shepherd. Now, let me just rephrase that. It starts with the reality that we have accepted the invitation to become the sheep of God's own keeping. <coughs> he could, he very well should, impress us if he would into service. But he doesn't. He beckons us, he calls us by his love. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord was David's shepherd. The question is, is he yours? Second part of verse 1 says, I shall not want. A contented sheep in the fold has rest and everything it needs. But some sheep are not content. Keller tells of a ewe he once owned whose conduct exactly typifies this person. Discontented, half-hearted Christian, he describes it. She was one of the most attractive sheep that ever belonged to him. He talks about her, her form, her, her body, everything was just as perfect as, a, as an animal could be. The coat of wool was excellent condition, her head was clean, alert, her well-set eyes, bright blue eyes. He said, she bore sturdy lambs that matured rapidly, but she had one pronounced fault. She was restless, discontent, a fence crawler, that's a phrase that he used. This one you produced more problems for me than almost all the rest of the flock put together. No matter what field or pasture the sheep were in, she would search all along the fences or shoreline looking for a loophole she could crawl through and start to feed on the other side. It was not that she lacked pasture. Uh, there were no sheep in the district that had better grazing. It was a challenge, he said, to find her and bring her back. But she taught her lambs the same tricks. They simply followed her example, and soon they became as skilled at escaping as their mother. Other sheep began to follow their example, or her example. So he said after putting up with her for a summer, he finally came to the conclusion that to save the rest of the flock from becoming unsettled, she would have to go. He could not allow one obstinate, discontented ewe to ruin the whole ranch operation. She was a sheep who, in spite of all that he had done to give her the very best care, she still wanted something else. He had to butcher her. Now, if we stop and try to apply this, it gets a little touchy, doesn't it? You know, is God going to butcher me if, if I become discontent? No, but it's clear to us that we need to realize that our discontent is not glorifying to God the Father. Our restlessness in pursuing our desires, our agenda doesn't serve the kingdom. It doesn't serve God, and therefore it doesn't benefit us. So in his love and his admonition, he disciplines. That's a concept that our culture today struggles against. Nobody's responsible for anything. You listen to anybody, no matter what they did, it's somebody else's fault. Beloved, that's a, that's a blatant lie, and it's spitting in the face of a God who is reaching out to us with love to say, I care for you. I sent my son to die for you. I will bring you into my family forever and ever. But you must be contented sheep. That doesn't mean that we have no courage. That doesn't mean that we don't serve God with ambition and vigor. It simply means that we follow the leading 
of the shepherd rather than making the shepherd constantly seek us because we got sidetracked with our own agendas. We are like sheep in more ways than we might want to admit. Verse 2, this is a precious, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures, or the New American said, he makes me lie down. I like that because the maketh, we get caught up in Shakespearean English and we go, what? But yeah, you know, my father made me sit down in church. Okay, I knew what that meant. Yeah, the little boy that kept standing up and his father finally put the firm hand down and pushed him to the seat and he said, you sit down or we're taking a walk. So the little boy sat there with his arms crossed and he looked and he sputtered. He said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Are we ever like that little boy? Outwardly, Lord, I want you to see that I'm obedient. As if we can fool the Lord, right? I want you to, I want at least other people. I can fool them. I want you to think that I'm all being obedient. But inside, I'm in outright rebellion against God because I'm seeking my will. I want to do what I want to do for whatever reasons. Self-glory, just because I don't want to do what God said, kind of like a guy named who? And the whale, who's that? Oh, you didn't know I was going to test you, right? <laughs> Moses and the whale, right? Okay, you're good. There you go. Anyway, it's almost impossible for sheep to lie down, and this is from the shepherd's perspective, unless four conditions are met. I'm just going to touch them, and you can work on them. One, the sheep have to be free from fear. Two, free from friction, friction rather, that is, with other sheep in the flock. Third, they have to be free from torment of flies and pests. And finally, they have to be free from hunger. Now, I wouldn't have known this, but Philip, who took care of sheep for eight years, said, all four of those conditions have to be met simultaneously. 304 doesn't count. The sheep will be restless for any one of those that's missing. And so you can work in your own mind to say, what are the, what are the analogies? Are free from fear? Well, I have fear. The Lord says, you know, perfect love casts out fear. So if I am in fear, then I am not trusting in God's perfect love, right? Free from friction, well, maybe I'm the source of friction. Maybe I'm rubbing everybody the wrong way and creating sparks. Maybe, just maybe. Is it possible? Talk about it. Free from torment. Well, flies and pests, we can see those are the darts of the enemy. Those are the things that would come, or the distractions of the world. Those things can be bothering us or, or distracting us, and they can keep us from resting. And free from hunger, of course. If you don't feed on God's word, you're going to starve without God's word. I don't mean physically starve, but you're going to spiritually starve, and it's even worse, I think, than physically. It's not good. Keller said that he came to realize nothing calmed and reassured the sheep, and this is what's beautiful, like his presence in the field. He told stories of times that the sheep were butting each other and fighting for the best position, and no humans do that, right? <laughs> and he would step out of the shade into the field, and within moments, his presence was like your dad stepping in the room after your mother warned you, wait until your father gets home. Dad shows at the door and my angel crown comes up and the horns disappear. But we are like sheep, folks. We are. And it's not all good. Green pastures don't happen by chance. You know, we have this picture that, oh, you know, the sheep just flow where they are. No. People own property. Farmers have property, right? You don't just get to go next door and graze on your, on your neighbor's property because he's done a better job of getting that forage you know, there. He cleared the rocks better. He's got better nutrition and all the things there. You don't just say, I'll jump the fence and let my sheep eat his crop. No, that'll get you in trouble. 
But the idea that the shepherd not only protects and provides for the sheep, but he works as a husbandman. He chooses places where he can tend to the soil and he can plant crops that will eventually become the the right nourishment for the sheep so that the green pastures, which are essential to the success of sheep raising, they'll be there. Remember the sheep that was looking over the fence that he said? Arid. It's amazing how we miss these things just because we don't know what it is. A hungry, ill-fed sheep is always on its feet, always moving in search for another scanty mouthful of food, brush. That's why the cattlemen didn't like sheep herders in the old days, because the sheep would be left to graze too long, and they would graze down so close they'd actually pull the roots right out of the ground. And that pasture would die, whereas the cattle could go through and the grass would come back. So sheep have to be provided for in more than just the nice, cozy tending. In the scriptures, the land or picture portrayed, or the promised land, rather, which God promised to Israel, was that of a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8 says that. But not only is this figurative language, but also essentially it's scientific terminology. In agricultural terms, uh, farmers speak of a milk flow and a honey flow. This means the peak season of spring and summer when pastures are at their most productive stage. Speaking of it in biblical terms, excuse me, we can understand the work that God does in our lives as he clears away the rocks of stony unbelief and tears out the roots of bitterness. He breaks up the hardness in our proud hearts so that he can plant the seeds of his word in our lives. And when he has prepared the soil and plants the seeds and watered it, those will come to fruition. We will mature and become mature sheep, obedient sheep, faithful sheep, productive sheep, glorifying sheep, glorifying to the king. It all works. But we are like real sheep sometimes, stubborn. I won't ask you to raise your hand. You'd probably be too stubborn to do that, right? (laughs) But we are. Stubborn is not a spiritual character, folks. Believe me. It's not in Scripture. The next verse, the NAS revised, NASB revised, reads that I'd never seen it before last week. To still waters he leads me. We had, he leads me beside still waters. But that translation, and I looked at it, it said it really is there. He leads the sheep. So to get them to the still waters, he leads them. And they need water. The body of a sheep is composed of about 70% water. They get all that wool, but there's 70% water. Lack of water is sensed by thirst. That's like us, right? Your mouth gets dry, you need a drink of water. But an outside source has to come to replenish it. So if the sheep are thirsty, they are restless. If they're restless, they will try to drink polluted water. You know what? As Christians, there are times when our spirit is parched, and we turn to the things of the world saying, well, it's quick, it's handy, it's convenient. You know, Lord, I know that it's not perfect for me, but, you know, it is wet. And so we take in the garbage of the world trying to solve a spiritual thirst, and we pollute our souls. We pollute our souls. Again, that urgency that we have, not trusting God. They can pick up parasites, they can get infections, and unhealthy, and they can die. So a shepherd has to provide not only the the lush pastures, but still water that's clean and safe for them. There are two common ways of providing good water back, as, as Keller describes it, wells and streams. He talks about the wells. They seem good, but if you go up close, the shepherd is down there, stripped right down to nothing but a loincloth, and he is bailing water into a trough that the sheep come down into. It has to be provided for them. 
or streams, and you have to be careful that the streams are not where all other pastures are running off all the waste products into the stream. Again, polluted water. And so that's a concept that we don't often think about. They can get those diseases. Um, verse 3a, he restores my soul. Do you know what it means to have your soul restored? We talk about people that restore old cars. They take old buildings and they restore them. Flipping hoses, flipping cars. God has slipped our soul. He purchased us in the wretched state we were in, and he invested heavenly things into us, and he restores us. That is, he built us back up to be faithful sheep, faithful followers of the king. Psalm 42, 11, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in the Lord. In other words, hope in the Lord. Don't be downcast. Hope in the Lord. Now, there is a term, it's an old English shepherd's term for sheep that is turned over on its back. It's called a cast sheep. I'm like not cast away, but a cast sheep. Now, if you can picture a fully woolly sheep laying on its back with four legs up in the air, it can't turn over. It's cast. It's helpless. The shepherd has to help it get over on its side and back on its feet or it's going to die. It's going to die from the struggle and from starvation and from the water, lack of water. But there are reasons that sheep become cast. This is where it gets personal, folks, so don't tune out. Listen. We as sheep, spiritual, can become cast because we rest in too comfortable a place. Complacency sounds something familiar? A heavy, fat, or long fleece sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax, but suddenly the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and starts to paw. This makes it all the worse. In the struggle, gases build up in the stomach, expand, cut off the circulation in the legs. A hot, sunny weather, the sheep could die in literally hours. Wow. We get too comfortable sometimes. That's a dangerous place. Secondly, too much wool. Often when fleece becomes very long and heavy matted with mud, manure, burrs, and other debris, it's much easier for a sheep to be cast, obviously, because there's a lot of weight. It's the area of my life where I am in continual contact with the world around me. It's significant that no high priest was ever allowed to wear wool when he entered the Holy of Holies. This spoke of self, of pride, of personal preference. God wouldn't tolerate it. The remedy for a cast sheep, because of its fleece, shear it. Take that away. Thirdly, too fat. <laughs> sheep need to be put on a diet and given more exercise. If people become too affluent in business and things go too well in life, they are in danger of becoming cast or losing their fitting in Christ. Revelation 3.17 tells us, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, we do best with the exercise of self-discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12.6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. And ladies, that also means daughters too. He chastens his daughters and sons. Lou, uh, Revelation 3.19, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore be earnest and repent. Those are tough words. We don't like discipline. It's necessary. Verse 3, the second part, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
If left to themselves, sheep will follow the same traits until they become ruts. They graze the same hills until they turn to desert wastes. They pollute their own ground until, until it's corrupt with disease and parasites. Many of the world's finest sheep ranges have been ruined beyond repair by overgrazing, poor management, indifference, or ignorant sheep owners. No other class of livestock requires more careful handling and more detailed direction than do sheep. Wow. You want to be a shepherd? There's a profession for you, right? A good shepherd knows that if the flock is to flourish and the owner's reputation to be held in high esteem as a good manager, the sheep must constantly be under his meticulous care. Not just week by week, not even day by day, but literally hour by hour, moment by moment. Remember the Bible tells us that God never sleeps, he doesn't even slumber. We should take comfort because if I've got somebody that's going to be guarding me, I don't want them to sleep on the job. And God is protecting us all the time. And that's the good shepherd. Sheep have to be moved from pasture to pasture periodically. You know what that's not saying? Moving from church to church. That's not what it is. It's moving in the feeding. And we grow. We no longer sincere just the milk but we desire the meat, and we want to, we were hungry for deeper knowledge. Molly talked about the, uh, the college course offered on eschatology. That's deepening your understanding of who God is, what God is going to do, and some interesting stuff about how and when it will happen. It's good. That's meat. That's some real meat. So even if you don't want to take it for credits, I would, I would uh, encourage you to sign up into, uh, what's it called? Audit the course, right? Okay. It's been a long time since I was there, so we do. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Most of the efficient sheepmen endeavor to take their flocks onto distant ranges up in the mountains during the summer months. The sheep are totally alone with their shepherd these months. It's rough. It's a steep trail up the mountain. The shepherds take it at a pace for the slowest sheep to keep up. Isn't that thoughtful? You know what? Too often we, we cater to the fast crowd the crowd that get things easy, and we like it. Why? Because it's a little less work for us, right? If you're teaching, it's easy to teach those kids that are sharp and quick and grab it on. It takes a little more effort to, and I don't say this, teach down, but to bring the information to a level that the slowest student can grab it and keep the fastest students challenged at the same time. God does it. He does it every single day. I'm on the slow end, folks, just so you know. And he's been faithful and patient with me, so I know he will be with you. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I know the kids were looking up here early this morning, and so I got a couple props. <clears throat> I think you've seen this before. I think Henry used this once for a sermon. Uh, this is the one that we are most familiar with. This is what, folks? What do you call this? A staff. Now, thy rod and thy staff. I did a little research. And when I walked in this morning, some of the people saw me carrying this and thought there was going to be a problem in church. But as I researched it, I realized what, what David wouldn't talk about the, the rod and thy staff as one thing. And so as I looked at it, I realized that shepherds would prepare a rod. Now a rod as a weapon against animals would certainly be more effective than the staff. If I had to be guarding sheep against lions and bears, this is what I want. This, I could just poke them to keep them away from me, I guess. But it's heavy, it's solid, 
It's, it's designed in such a way that it can wield quite a blow. I put a strap on mine so that if I get using it, it's not going to fly off. But also, they would train how to throw it. There we go, get back out of it. So they would throw it with such accuracy that they could throw it at an animal at a distance and give it a good clubbing. And it would be a protecting device. Thy staff is what we're so familiar with, all the little shepherd boys, is a very functional tool. It's long, it has quite a reach, so if a sheep is in trouble and is stuck, you can just get right down there and you can pull it back out of the, out of the bush and you guide it. The shepherd would use it to guide the sheep. I was guiding my youngest grandson this morning as he was wanting to play with my props. I said, you know, you're the sheep for a moment, go this way, and then I'd tap him in this way, and they would guide the sheep as they needed to move them into water or into good pastures, but also as the protection. So when we talk about the Lord as our shepherd, he has ways that he guides us, his word. He has ways that he disciplines us. We don't like that part. I don't think he uses the club literally, maybe figuratively, if we get to the point where we are so uh, rowdy that he has to discipline us in a certain way. But that is because of his great love for us. As we think about it, it's discipline. No discipline for the moment is pleasant. I never thanked my father for giving me a good spanking. Actually, one time I challenged him, said, that all you got? <laughs> Not a good move. Not a good move. My dad had me about 70 pounds at the time, and I realized that was not a smart. That was a smart aleck crack. It wasn't smart. But he did it because he loved me. And you know when that took hold in my mind? When I realized that what my father said when he said, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I'm laughing, going, yeah, all right. <laughs> the day that I looked into the eyes of our firstborn, and I had to correct her. My father's words came flashing back. This hurts. This is hard. But in my love, I applied the discipline. And that's the loving father. That's the good shepherd. He does it not because he's vindictive or angry with us. God's only anger is against sin, not his people, the sinner. And he loves us too much to let us continue in sin, which will lead to disaster. He doesn't want us to become spiritually stale or spiritually ill or stagnant. He loves us too much to let us go through that. And so at times he applies the correction and at times he applies the discipline, always guiding us because he loves us and he cares for us. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. Search me, O God. God's word searches us. If you can read this word day by day by day, never being convicted, I want to know what translation you're reading. Seriously. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. What does God expect of us? Where does our life line up? What must I do to come in line with God's correction? And how do I apply that in such a way it becomes my new nature? That training in righteousness, continually doing the right thing. Scripture is full of examples and admonitions and principles that we are expected to follow because God knows what's best for us. 
He cares. He cares deeply for us. Well, I got three more hours, folks. <laughs> Notes, but not three more hours of time. So I'm going to stop there. I know I didn't quite get to the end, but I want to challenge you. Pastor Russ last Sunday challenged all of us to read through the Bible over the next year and to make notes of every time we had a reference to the cross. I got a shorter assignment for you. This is a fill-in, right? Starting tomorrow, there's six verses in Psalm 23. Take verse 1 and just meditate on those two phrases through the day. Just pray it in the morning, think about it through the day, and just say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Wow. The Lord, God, creator of the universe, is my shepherd. And just work it through. And the next day, take the next verse. And then you come back next Sunday. I'm not going to give you a test. But I trust that you'll be blessed, that you'll have new insights. Read the psalm, get the book, and, and get into even more insights. But here's the challenge that I leave you with. When we, when we encounter God's word, do we walk away from that experience different? Second part, is that different a good different? Or is that different an indifference to God's word? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's your word. It's not ours. We humbly proclaim that word as truth, absolute truth, beneficial to all who call you Savior. Lord, I pray that these words touch hearts today, my own included, even as I preach the message. You encouraged and you admonished and you reminded. And so may that be each of our experiences that we would go to that well, that fountain of knowledge and blessing, your word. And that we would recognize that you as our great shepherd have our very best desires and cares and needs in your heart. Help us to live that, not just in word, but in deed. And Lord, through that, may we touch other lives and impact them for the kingdom. And we pray these things in your priceless name. Amen. Amen.